0: I'm Conrad Marshall, and from the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, this is Good Weekend Talks, a magazine for your ears, in which we take a deep dive into the definitive stories of the day. In this week's episode, we speak with Anita Heiss, one of Australia's most prolific authors of everything from non-fiction to historical fiction, commercial fiction, and kids' fiction. Heiss, a Wiradjuri woman, is also a poet, playwright, and public speaker, and teaches at the University of Queensland where she's a Professor of Communications in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit. I'm really pleased to host this conversation myself about everything from sisterhood to black cowboys to the writing life and an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Welcome, Anita. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Now, Anita, if one were to Google you, as I have in preparation for this, the first page that comes up is your own website with a hyperlink heading that reads, Anita Heiss author, poet, satirist, social commentator. So, I have to ask, which one is it? What do you prefer to do or see yourself as being primarily?
1: Well, I think I need to go and check my website and maybe update that. But (laughs) I would have to say I see myself primarily today as an author. But I would say that that role as an author uh, covers all the other aspects of my career so a social commentator and uh, satirist I really don't think I'm a poet any longer so we can take that off the website I my novels and now my play my first play include humor as a way to engage and always offer social commentary whether it's a Black Lives Matter movement whether it's the role of First Nations literature whether it's about Aboriginality and how that's discussed in the public domain i would say yeah definitely my role as an author across genres
0: okay so that's your life now that's that's what you do but let's zoom back for a second as we always do in these chats and get some some background your mother elsie was born on the arambi mission in cowra and your dad joseph he was born in salzburg austria how did they come together so that's that's the question otherwise known as anita tell me your origin story
1: my origin story is the foundation of the greatest love story I know. <laughs> so, Elsie and Joe, so my mum, as you was born in Rambi Mission in Cowra. She was living in Redfern at the time. My father got an assisted passage to Tasmania from Austria paid off his fare and then moved to to Sydney and was in a hostel with other Austrians in Villawood and he went to a party in Pagewood one night where my mother went to a party with an Austrian woman she was waitressing with and they met there and my father couldn't speak English very well. Mum reckons all the women would just giggle and laugh because, you know, they didn't know what he was saying and he used to stalk her in Redfern, and I tell kids in schools not to do this. In those days it was called courting, but do not be sitting on the front step of some poor girl's house. Do not be driving up and down the driveway. No. The street at 5am in the morning. This is not on. Um, Well, we stalk on social media now instead. That's true. Much safer, much safer. And uh, my father would sit outside Australian Hall, which is the heritage-listed building in in Elizabeth Street, where the uh, 1938 Day of Morning Protest and Conference happened, and that's where the local quarries would go dancing, on a Friday night, and my father, because he didn't have confidence in the language, he wouldn't go in, but he'd wait outside for my mum and then follow her home or drop her home and so forth. And they settled in Matraville, which it was where I grew up, strategically mm-hmm. placed between Long Bay Jail, Malabar Searidge Works and Orica Industrial Estate. <laughs> and I uh, had five kids. Uh, family home is still there, and we all went to the local primary Catholic school and then on to other schools for high school. But... You know what I learned from them? We never took, race was never an issue. It was never discussed at home um, until I went out know, with a racist boyfriend, and mm. then then it got discussed in the home. They were just, you know, two people from very different worlds who shared ex- an extraordinary sense of um, family and both very strong work ethics, which you know was role modelled to me. So I love, I love. I love talking about them because I, I think like <laughs> I'm in my 50s and I'm still single because I wanted to have the the, the, the home life that I grew up in, which they, pro- which they provided, yeah.
0: And you were a good student but I believe not a great student and even suspended a couple of times. <gasps> Yet you finished a PhD in communications and media from the University of Western Sydney and you were the first Aboriginal person to do so there I've heard that you regard that as your proudest achievement, but you have other very proud achievements too.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you for flagging my suspensions. That's helpful. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Great. start with the negative. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I only know you know that because I told you. Okay, so, yeah, so at the time, absolutely. I was the first person in my family to go to university. That's a really big deal, obviously, on both sides of my family.
0: Yeah. And
1: then the first person to graduate in what is now known as Western Sydney University. But it's important for people to understand that at that time, Western Sydney had the greatest population of First Nations peoples in the country and there should be lots of people graduating from that university, surrounded by yeah. Aboriginal and Torres Islander people. So I'm grateful. I know the, the life that I have now. I'm a professor of communications here at UQ. The life that I've led, the travel, the doors that have opened are because of the education that I've had. So I'm absolutely grateful for that. But if I think about we all have different identities in terms of our work and and studies and so forth. If I think about being a creative and being an author, I would absolutely have to say that my novel On the Great Flood of Gundagai and the Heroes Yadi and Jackie Jackie and Life for Wiradjuri people on country in the mid-19th century, that novel Billy at a Dungalong Duray is probably my greatest creative achievement to date. Having said that, we are in the middle of my play, Titters. And um, in two weeks' time I might have a different answer in that space. But I think Billy Aradangalang DeRay being the first Australian commercial novel to... Um, be published without English on the front cover was quite an achievement again it was 2021 at the time and that shouldn't have been a big deal but it it was Mm. and I think on a personal level I would say running my first marathon at 49 at Uluru never imagining that I would ever be a long distance runner and then going on to run the New York marathon I've done New York amazing
0: experience
1: just incredible so running that Few months later, and retiring then for the second time, <laughs> and then going to Chicago. Oh no. Going to Boston, I should say, to cheer on someone and meeting the. F- I was
0: going to say you didn't qualify for Boston. No, Did no. you have to qualify. Yes, for
1: that? no. I, but I, I uh, went to cheer someone on, and I met the first woman to win the Boston Marathon. And of course, really? women weren't allowed. To, women weren't allowed to run in of marathons course. in the U.S., and so they were protesting and would just. And so I met her, and so then I got home from Boston, and I changed my registration to the to the Gold Coast Marathon. I was in the half, and I changed it to a full. So I ran th- three and eleven months and I think I think I must have been 50 when I ran the third one and so I think for me that was you know that one that was a big deal that's I'm very very proud of that achievement those achievements. Amazing
0: and I understand you really enjoy teaching as well you you taught at was it Macquarie University and an introduction to Indigenous Australia course what kind of material did you bring to that and enjoy sharing with them? with the student faculty.
1: I did enjoy the teaching though. I used to have really bad anxiety. Most of my students were international students. So they come in knowing nothing uh, with with expectations and stereotypes that they'd got from, you know, Crocodile Dundee and so forth. So I had to explain, I don't tell time by the sun. I tell time by watch and so forth. And so the course was co-taught with professor Malcolm McDaniel, who's the Pro Vice Chancellor of Indigenous Ga- Engagement at UTS Now. And we brought a lot of art. So each week, we you know, we, we do the basics of demographics and history, policy and so forth, um, identity, and then use the art forms to teach. So dance and literature and music and film and so forth. So I really enjoyed that because sometimes, I mean, I think the arts are a fantastic tool for teaching about anything really, but seeing as we've been singing, dancing, painting, performing, telling stories since the beginning of time, it makes sense to use those methods and those resources to teach. And so I left academia, though, because I felt very personally stifled creatively because, you know, back then the work that I do now as a creative writer, as a novelist and a playwright or whatever, was not recognised in the academy the way it is today. So that stifling of the creative mind really took its toll. So after a few years, I was ready to leave. But it's good to be here at UQ and I now just do guest lectures across different courses and that's wonderful.
0: Now, I'm not sure if I'm more ignorant or oblivious than most people, but I certainly wasn't aware of this long, long history of Indigenous stockmen in Australia, particularly the notion that they really carried that early industry and that they were the stars of the show. What brought you to the topic of rodeo? a novel called Rodeo Dreaming. What was the research like? And how's the book coming?
1: I I don't know why. I cannot explain it. But I always wanted to go to a rodeo. I was a huge Gene Autry fan when I was a child. I'd get up at 5 o'clock in the morning to watch the black and white show of Gene Autry and his mate and the singing cowboy. Yes. And I think his mate was called Frogger or something. And he, Anyway, I used to watch. I loved that. Mm-hmm. Then I had thought going to a rodeo for my 50th birthday would be a fabulous thing to do. Interestingly my birthday is in August when the Mount Isa Rodeo is on mm-hmm. but I couldn't make that happen so I went on a cruise which is a completely other end of the spectrum <laughs> rodeo or cruise the pacific anyway I did that but I wanted to write something fun after Billy had dungalong Duray and I thought uh, Audible had just purchased the rights to Manhattan Dreaming and Paris Dreaming and I thought, well, now's the time. Let's, I, I can get all rodeo, I'll do rodeo dreaming and of course Queensland's got plenty of rodeos going on. So I started off, I went to the PBA, the Professional Bull, so Bull Riders Association event up in Rockhampton. Yes. I, so I went to that, I got myself bling jeans, I got all my boots ready um, and I went to that. It was like, it was such a cultural experience or culture shock I should say and then how I'll-
0: good does it feel to get kitted out in that cowboy gear by the way i bought myself a sweet Akubra when i was up there yeah. and i love that hat
1: no i love my hat i'll talk about that in a minute but <laughs> i felt i was so worried about i want to going to wear what i'm going to wear i don't want to stand like you still look like the city slicker trying to fit in right but I went around, because I'm a method writer, so I get into character. So I go in the in the novel, you know, some of the characters are getting selfies. It's like, is it 10 or 12 bulls around Rocky? So I'm there, you know, jumping out of the car and taking selfies and so forth. But then after that, my research assistants, otherwise known as my running buddies, came out to Warwick with me, went to the Warwick Rodeo. And I went a day earlier so I could go to the M- Rodeo Museum there and also do a recce around, because I had to write about the environment, the landscape, the main roads, the restaurants and so forth. Went out early to the showgrounds, got myself a gorgeous Maverick hat. I mean, I tried on about 10 hats. Those, those men serving me, they were so patient. Um, I said they, you could, they could sell cars, but I said I need something that I can wear back in Brisbane because they're not cheap, No, right? I went to the op shop and I got myself like literally jeans with Bling on the bum, right? Amazing. Which I'm like, I go, soon, soon as the rodeo's over, I'm taking these back. But now they're so comfortable, I just wear them all the time. They go off every time I go through security <laughs> at the airport. And like, it's just my bottom. It was a u- unique experience. I know you always wanted to go to ro- – was it your first rodeo?
0: It was. This is close to my heart, as you know, because I recently went to the biggest rodeo in Australia, the Mount Isa Mines Rodeo where they were holding the inaugural Indigenous Rodeo Championship. And I really think they need to sell t-shirts there that say Yes, this is my first rodeo.
1: Well, I was just thinking when I <laughs> asked you that question. At least now we can say it's not my first rodeo. That's right. Um, so it was. It was really. Look, I'm sitting there the whole time, time. I'm looking for all the senses. What can I see? What can I smell? What can I hear? What's the food taste like? So I'm taking notes the whole time, talking to people and so forth, getting into the groove, as it were, sticking out like a sore thumb. The four of us sitting in the stands, like like city slickers who have come in for the day. <laughs> The novel is now I'm mean, on the second draft, and that's due at the end of October. I hope it's the end of October. We're hoping to release that in NAIDOC week next year with a very special narrator, but I can't tell you who that might be. Oh, you sure? i absolutely sure, because I don't know if they know yet.
0: <laughs> and what's it about... Um, specifically, what's the, it's, oh, it's a love okay. story, yes. isn't it?
1: Uh, yeah, yeah, so it's really about a girl, she's an arts curator, so I always like stick to the arts. She's a gallery curator here in Brisbane. She goes to speak to uh, an artist down in, in Warwick, a First Nations artist in Warwick, but falls in love with a cowboy, and how is that gonna work? You know, she's a vegetarian in the arts, he just he's he wears black all the time and just wants to, you know, wear his black and boots and he's you know, they're like chalk and cheese. Like my mum and dad really. Is this going to work? Is she going to ride off into the, the 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 red sunset in you know with him on a horse, or is he going to move to the city? So but I had lots of fun. I have a you know I had a, we went I went to the country music festival down on the Gold Coast. So there's a whole chapter about that. Um, you know he's scared of heights and she's just booked this you know the forty third floor in the building of the hotel thinking She's doing the right thing and he can't go in on the balcony. <laughs> so
0: That's very crocodile Dundee.
1: Oh yeah, I didn't even think about that. But there you go.
0: Now, is is he indigenous? By the way, he is. Yes. Okay. And is she white?
1: No, no. They're both First Nations. Okay. Wonderful. Um, but it's also like she's she she's trying to understand how and why um, Murrays or Curries are involved in bull riding or rodeos when clearly the animals don't like it. And he's trying to explain that we we grew up with this. You had a kid. You had a you had a horse as a child, and all and it's not, And the women do all the things that the men do as well. So. You know there's this clash of internal culture but class clash of western thing as well so
0: absolutely Mm. no in in my own research i spoke to a lot of people about the the cattle industry and how it developed over time and one person they had this lovely line about um about some of those star indigenous stockmen Mm. of the early part of the 20th century and it was like um we were born in the cattle yeah very much of that Mm -hmm. world You were involved in what became a very famous court case, a a 2011 federal court action against columnist Andrew Bolt and the Herald Sun, after articles accusing individuals of choosing, and that's the um, same inverted air quotes, choosing their identity for personal benefit. I believe the title of the article was White is the New Black. Can you tell me what it feels like when somebody makes that kind of claim and why it's so important push back? Because you you wrote a book only a year later, at the, your, your memoir, right, titled Am I Black Enough for You?
1: Yep, sure. Well, first of all, there were two versions of the same story, one online, one in the hard copy, and the title was I think the hard copy one was White is the New Black and the online version was Meet the New White Face of Black Australia. And, of course, those uh, both the the online version, obviously, that that was syndicated around the world and so forth. So those claims that I and others who were mentioned in the article about having chosen our identities for political and financial gain, in short, I would say the words I would use were shocked, uh, confused, appalled, I was affronted and I was angry. And and I was upset, obviously. So all of that equals being upset, I guess. When once the case was over, I made a media statement at the time, and your listeners can have a look at that on my blog or it's on Crikey or whatever. And I noted that I was once the chair, I was the former deputy chair, and I was a committee member of the Australian Society of Authors for I think about eight years, and I long had advocated for, I've been part of campaigns to protect the rights of Australian authors, um, including the rights of the said journalist. I use the term journalist loosely. Um, At the same time, I also also advocated for um, responsibility in writing and an ethical approach to publishing. So for me, it was important to push back the way we did because I believe the outcome that was handed down by Judge Bromberg meant or should have meant that Australia... Could expect to have a higher quality and more responsible media, and that to some degree the persecution of Aboriginal people in the press would be lessened, and that's why I chose to be part of the case because I think Australian readers. There's so many levels of what was wrong with that, but at the out, at the, you know, the, one of the reasons is Australian readers also deserve better quality journalism. Um, going to court was not the initial action that was taken. We did try mediation, but the, the team on the other side did not want to apologise, which is what we asked. We want to ask for apology and please take the articles down and could we please write some articles for the Herald Sun and they didn't want to borrow that.
0: The, just to clarify, the, the ruling from Justice Bromberg was that they were in violation of the Racial Discrimination Act. That is yes? correct. Yep. That is
1: correct. So... What the point is that we all have free speech. You have free speech. I have free speech. But you can't lie about people. You can't perpetuate. You can't publish untruths. And I think the the big the big concern around the time. And I can tell you this because I've said it many times. What what disappointed me, I guess, during after or around the, during the court case, was I have a lot of friends in media, non-Indigenous people in media, who would claim to respect me, probably or regard me as a friend or a colleague, who would say to me that they were concerned about their free speech. And I'm like, what is it you want to say about people that you can't say under the law? And they didn't have anything specific. Yeah. They hadn't read the documentation. And so I was quite disappointed about that. And I think, Dr. Ro- the late Dr Rosie Scott, she was an award-winning author and playwright. She was the chair of the Australian Society of Authors. She was the former vice president of Penn Sydney, which is an organisation that fights for the rights of imprisoned writers who certainly don't have the free speech that you and I have every day. And she wrote a quote. I was going, I had to give a speech at an at a literary awards and she gave me a quote. And I think she summed it up perfectly when she said, Free speech is the cornerstone of genuine democracy. But when writers publish disinformation dressed up as fact, lies as truth, slander as objective evaluation and call it free speech, they are devaluing its very essence and betraying all those who fought for it. And I think that's it in a nutshell.
0: Thank you for um, for going there. I know it's not your favourite topic and it's 12 years in the, the past, uh, mm. but, you know, those issues are still circling yeah. around today, so felt important to address. How about we talk about something fun? Tiddes. Okay. Yep. It's an acclaimed novel that you published in 2014. The word itself, I believe, is a, a term for women who are like sisters. And you are yep. staging a play based on that book as we speak. Can you tell us a little bit about where people can see that and why they should?
1: Oh, of course. I'd love to tell people that. <laughs> uh, you can see it at Le Bois Theatre. It is running now and it closes on September 24. Um, according to the actors, which uh, I have learned so much from the actors, it's the first time that they've seen these conversations by and about black woman, women in a contemporary urban setting on the stage. So I think for people interested in getting into our space and to hearing some truth-telling, married with a lot of humour and a roller coaster of other emotions, I think you will love the multiple storylines. There's five main characters. Uh, it's also a love letter to Brisbane and people, I think people coming to the play, particularly if you're not from Brisbane, I have loads of people coming up from Newcastle, Melbourne, Griffith, Sydney, I think what they will see They'll come to understand the power of Maywa, the river, beyond the floods. If you're a book lover, you will love Titters because the storyline is built around Vixens, the book club, and introduces audiences to a number of First Nations titles and themes, and the themes of those books then become the springboards to the bigger conversations around life, love, family, a range of issues around including identity and so forth. So I th- and also I was going to say, if you think you want to write the great Australian novel, then there's some tips in the play for you as well. I, I think for Brisbane people, and um, people who love Brisbane as I do, then Titters has been described as a love letter to Brisbane. And the women live in suburbs West End, um, The Gap, Kangaroo Point, Paddington and Upper Brookfield. And both Maywar, the River and the Jacaranda are major characters in the play. If you just want to get amongst it, have a night out, we're going to have, it's going to be lots of fun. Come to the theatre, we'll have a purple carpet instead of a red one. You've got to wear purple, we've got a theme is purple, we're going to have like purple cocktails and so forth. So it's going to be, I'm very, 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 very excited. As you should be.
0: What's it been like working with a bunch of other people in a group on a on a creative endeavour like that? I mean, you're you're a novelist, you're a writer, you're used to bunkering down and focusing on the words that are emerging on your screen through your fingertips, very different experience, I imagine.
1: So different, and I have to stop saying, using the word challenging all the time, because really, particularly in the last, we've been in rehearsals now for the fourth week of rehearsals and it's absolutely joyful. The watching it all come alive, watching the actors bring their own experiences, their life experiences, but their creative talent to the space, watching them bring their creative talent to the characters, the writing process, as you can imagine, because you write solo as well uh, as a journo, it, it, so it was qu- it, that was a challenge because you you work with you it's you and your editor, uh, yep. and then all of a sudden it's me and it's the dramaturg and the creative producer and maybe the artistic directors in the room and all the actors have a say in their characters and so forth. So th- when I first started doing that, I was like, oh, there was a few tears, and I'm like, but that's not what I want to do. And but oh, you have to learn to trust that you know, writing for the stage is, you know, the show don't tell thing and writing a novel you're writing down every single thing they can see and hear and smell and taste and every emotion. What are they thinking? And so it was really pulling the novel back to its bare bones and turning it into dialogue but then also understanding that I could let go of the novel and create some new material for the play. At one point my fabulous dramaturg who is now my the director, she said, Anita, I do not want to see that novel one more time because I had all these sticky things (laughs) in there because I thought I had to be so true. But honestly, and I've I've said to everyone, I won't be doing that again. But my current dramaturg, Jane Harrison, she said, you just wait till the third curtain call on opening night and you'll be going, yeah, I want to do this again. I don't know. I can think I can tick that off the box. <laughs> tick that. Tick that box. I
0: should say. All right. Well, let's go from bookish pursuits into the the buffo sort of world of sport. Um, Anthony Albanese recently met with um, Shaquille O'Neal while he was in in the country, um, and he talked about the indigenous voice to parliament. and He he made the point that he wants to lean on sports AFL, NRL, basketball, netball to support that campaign. You're already an ambassador for the Go Foundation, which does work with um, people, including former AFL players, Adam Goods and Mickey O'Loughlin from the Swans. Um, how do you feel about the way the AFL deals with Indigenous issues? And that's from the strides that they've taken to the battles that they've maybe shirked. I imagine it's difficult to reconcile. On the one hand, the national game is this great platform for Indigenous people to shine and share their culture through things like Indigenous Round. On the other hand, not a week goes by when we're not forced to call out racism from some bile fan mm-hmm. or another.
1: Mm. Oh, big question, but big is the game question.
0: doing well or poorly? Gosh. Or is it not that simple?
1: Well, I, I'm trying to think how many que- I think there's about five questions here. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Go Foundation, the Goods O'Loughlin Foundation, was founded by Adam and Michael, and they've built this huge ecosystem that supports go scholars, and of course, that includes uh, the Sydney Swans. We actually had a fabulous fundraising lunch in Sydney a few weeks ago. We raised something like three hundred sixty eight thousand dollars at the lunch. I tell you, it was one of the wow. one of the most extraordinary events I've had the 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 privilege to MC. Now, in terms, of, I think I want to look at a couple of things. In terms of Indigenous people in the AFL, the AFL Players Association in twenty fourteen launched an Indigenous map to see how many players there were and where they came from. I remember now, it th- well, yeah. yeah. so this year, you want to have a guess at how many players there are this year, including um, AFL and AFL-W?
0: Um, 200. 200.
1: Oh, no, not many. Not that many. So this year, the map uh, displays the language groups of 81 males and 20 AFLW players. So it's 101 players in total. Okay. And the map is about celebrating the cultural diversity of both competitions. There were 73 different language cultural groups represented across that map. And it's about informing and educating the football community and the wider public on various language and cultural groups in, uh, of, in of Indigenous AFL and AFLW players. And it also shows the number of players on the field. So this is what interests me. Yep. Imagine, imagine what the game would look like if you removed those players off the field. Yes. So you mentioned it's a place for us to shine. But in reality, I think it's a place that really needs us. What, mm-hmm. would, what would the game be without some of our star players who provide not only the skills but also the personality on the field? Now, you mentioned also in your question there sharing culture and, of course, AFL was born from Marngrook and that game was played in Western Victoria for millennia. And mm. I understand the ball was made from possum skin and I read somewhere that it was stuffed with emu feathers. So, you know, the AFL owes a lot to the origins of that sport. Now, in terms of calling out racism, can, if you don't mind, can we just go back mm-hmm. um, back a bit to the way in which Adam Goodes was was treated Yes. Because it was well documented in the documentary. I don't know if you've seen it the final Both quarter. Of them, yeah. Yeah. And it premiered at the Sydney Film Festival. Now, the documentary, for those of listeners who haven't seen it, um, my call to action to you is to watch it and watch it with someone who doesn't understand or didn't understand at the time that it was racism in action. I've never seen a country so divided about a sporting subject like this. What he's doing is cutting through, he's forcing our nation to talk. It's not a comfortable thing to talk about. It's definitely not a comfortable thing to go through. I decided to stand up. So the documentary tells the story of, of the Sydney Swans AFL legend Adam Goodes and the final three years of his playing career. where he became. This is a quote, where he became a lightning rod for a heated public debate and widespread media commentary that divided the nation. Now, during that period... He, was publicly, he publicly called out racism, which was in your question, on and off the field. He also was named Australian of the Year 2014. Yes. He was accused of staging for free kicks, which, you know, that's not unusual in football, but he was really pointed out for that and was criticised for what I thought was an inspiring on-field war dance celebration, an act of culture, right? Yes. With the, you know, with the invisible spear, remember?
0: Which he had practised with, with young with Indigenous boys, men that yeah, afternoon. Yeah. That's
1: correct. Now, over time, you know, when you, the cheers became booze as football crowds turned against him en masse, right? Yep. We watched it all unfold via the media. Now, as you know, as you've mentioned, I'm an ambassador for the Go Foundation, and, and since Andrew Bolt had been included in the documentary, I was offered an early screening so that I was prepared for any conversations that would follow after opening night in Sydney. So I first saw the film privately in the Shark Island production suite in Willara and I sat in the theatre in the dark and I sobbed. I watched the final years of Adam's career told through the lens of media. So there was nothing new in this documentary. It was just, remember, a, combi- yeah. Yeah, just a montage of what actually was said and what happened, right?
0: There was no talking so, heads like no the, talking- the other one. The no, the, Australian Forget- Dream one, yeah, yes, the Australian one.
1: Yes, that's Dream. right. So it's just all archival footage including disgusting behaviour on the ground at uh, games uh, where spectators booed Adam now, watching how one of Australia's greatest sporting legends was treated was heartbreaking for me. It was challenging, it was frightening, and it was sad, just as it was when the racism had unfolded back when Adam was Australian of the Year. An elite athlete, a role model, and a strong voice um, in the anti-racism campaign. There was, you know, the hashtag racism, it stops with, with me. So he was, there, he was just doing on a daily basis what he had signed up to do, to say it stops with me. Hmm. Now, I think the blatant wave of public racism directed at him um, in the media and at football grounds impacted most Aboriginal people following the controversy, and it's why I was in tears within the first few minutes of the viewing, and I sobbed when it was over. I felt completely wiped out after sitting through the media reports and the footage that, look, I say at bad, at, at best it was bad sportsmanship. Um, and public displays of venomous racism at its worst. Now, can you imagine? This is my question to your listeners can you imagine what it must have been like for Adam, a national treasure and legend back then, standing on the field in stadiums where tens of thousands of people thought it was okay to behave like that? I mean, it's an unsafe space, really. Now, my maths isn't great because we're talking about the AFL and where responsibility and accountability for making things better, lies. Yes. And you may disagree with me, but at the time there were 18 teams in the AFL, 11 teams were Victorian. The commentators in the documentary were Andrew Bolt, Eddie Maguire and Sam Newman, and their audiences were, by and large, Victorians. So I think Victoria is an AFL state. Where are you?
0: Yep, Victoria. Oh, you're yep, in Victoria. I'm, in, I'm here.
1: Okay, you're responsible. So for Victoria, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, is the hub. Uh, for the game because of its history. Now, I don't know many Victorians who don't follow an AFL team and with that in mind, I feel that Victorians hold a huge amount of responsibility for dealing with and responding to and wiping out racism in the AFL. Yes, it's a responsibility of the actual game, the league itself, the associations, but, you know, people go to the games uh, and there were, of course, there were also incidents before anyone says anything. The Swans played Port Adelaide, and the Lions at the Gabba in Brisbane. There were incidents there, yep. and it's Subiaco in WA, where the West Coast fans booed as well, which demonstrates that, in fact, it's a national disgrace. But has it changed? I think you asked me: has it got better? Has it changed? I think Eddie Betts' revelations in his recent autobiography, it's "The Boy from not, yeah, yeah," the boy from Boomerang Crescent, where he talks about he was talked into silence by the Adelaide Crows after receiving that racist letter during the week of Sir Douglas Round. It was 2016. But no doubt, you know, that's all that, that's just we know about. So I would say it probably hasn't changed that much. And as you say, there's something happening every other week.
0: Yeah, it's awful. It's something for us all to consider and reflect on. I have one more question for you, Anita, on, a, on an upside Okay. while we're on football. This podcast is going to go live, I think, around September 17, meaning almost two full weeks of finals will have been played. (laughs) Do you care to predict in this podcast, which is now a fortnight-sized oral time capsule, how your Sydney Swans will have fared by the time this airs? Will they have beaten Melbourne handily and sailed into a preliminary final? Or will they have lost to the Demons and instead front up to the Lions or my Tigers?
1: I'm just going to say one thing. The grand final is on the closing night of my play. And I will be watching while I get my hair and makeup done at the hotel. I predict, and this is going to upset some of my friends, but I'm hoping for a Swans v Tigers game.
0: Well, I think we can both get behind that. Fantastic.
1: And we and we can we can get together and have a yarn when uh, when we're cheering the red and the white
0: or the yellow and black.
1: Okay, my <laughs> Thank first you. ever my first ever game was when I was twelve years old. I lived in Sydney and went to Melbourne, and it was um, it was a Carlton versus Richmond, and we made a banner, Scratch'em Tigers.
0: <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Look, thank you so much for joining me, Anita. As, as we mentioned in the podcast, you're an incredibly busy person, so I don't take your time for granted. Um, it's been wonderful having you here.
1: Loved every minute of it. Thank you very much.
0: Good Weekend Talks is brought to you by the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. Subscriptions power our newsrooms. To support independent journalism, search subscribe Sydney Morning Herald or The Age. And if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe, rate and comment wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Good Weekend Talks is produced by Julia Katzel, Technical assistance from Cormac Lally. Editing from Conrad Marshall. Tom McKendrick is head of audio. And Katrina Strickland is the editor of Good Weekend.